Hello from Cork to the world. This is the Song Collector Podcast, brought to you by Roy Buckley Music. Okay, Roy, we're back again with another episode of the Song Collector Podcast. Again, the new music continues to come in. Um, I have mm-hmm. some special, a special one to start with today. I've chosen today's one. We are going to be talking with the the bard himself, our own bard, John Spillane. This was a fun interview. He brought his guitar. Uh, we're not allowed to say where we recorded it, other than describe it as the Hit Factory. Ah, uh, you got there. You wanted to do that. <laughs> Welcome to the Hit Factory. That's exactly what he said when he opened the door. <laughs> He's a fun I guy. I love John Spillane. He's an absolute character. Beautiful songwriter. Um, uh, he just paints beautiful pictures and imagery in his songs. And a know? storyteller supreme. Big time, yeah. So, and I just do, the way he plays uh, his guitar as well, the, those melodies, man, it's just... That's like, it. He, and because in your head he's a days. gifted guitarist. Oh, yeah. We were talking about Browner in the last episode. Browner is just a legend, but actually on a softer level, playing lovely, sweet, folky, soft... Spillane's gifted. Big time, yeah. Gifted. And it's funny because you mentioned Dave Brown there. I've had... Um, <clears throat> Well, you've you've been there too, sure. But I've had um, John Spillane and Dave Brown on song collector sessions yeah. together. Funny story. Dave and uh, John were on, on a gig here in Cork, and uh, John was going to do uh, the dance of the cherry trees. You know that beautiful yeah. song, right? And he just goes, uh, "Dave Brown, <laughs> come on off here." <laughs> <laughs> I make this sound like a cherry tree. <laughs> and Dave did his thing and it was great. And John slayed it a bit. And then they finished and John goes, ladies and gentlemen, that's what a cherry tree sounds like. <laughs> it yeah. was brilliant. Yeah, the, the, it's great, it's great. So that's that, that's coming up. Now, the, mu- the new song to start with today uh, is my old pal, Ruby Tina. Now, Ruby's been writing songs and recording in her own little setup at home for years. Mm-hmm. And in the last while, she's gone to making video. And this is a, a new song she's put out on video called Lie to Me. And it's catching a big interest because you've got to watch the video to the end. On the YouTube, is it? On the YouTube. All right. I but it's seen a, the video. It's such a beautiful, beautiful song. Uh, it's called Lie to Me, and I wanted to give it a spin today. This is from Cork, Ruby Tina. I can feel tears behind my face. And I know my smile's about to fade I can feel I'm holding it back Cause I'm trying not to break Only for so Thank you. 
Listening to the Song Collector podcast, brought to you from Cork, Ireland, by Roy Buckley Music. Ruby's been one of these artists, Roy, that I've been kind of following and made friends with years mm-hmm. ago. And someday she's going to break, and it won't be just a break; it'll be an earthquake. I know Ruby from from uh, around the scene and all that. We've we've met loads of times over the years. Great voice, great mm. piano player as well, and she's always, as you said, she's been uh, writing songs for a while, but. Um, yeah, she's uh, she's really great though. Mm. I mean, yeah, you'd expect uh, someone like Ruby to definitely break at some stage with with uh, the amount of work she puts in. Yeah, she yeah. will. I, I just know. That, she, was, I that just... was a great show out of you. Great, great sound choice. She's super. Now to John Spillane. What can you say about Spillane? He's around forever. He will be around forever. He never changes. Except the hair turns a little bit greyer. <laughs> How long have you known Spillane? I've known him a very long time. Um, John has been a great friend of the Sound Collector Sessions for since the start, really. We were in uh, the PAV, we were out in Douglas, we've been in Port Leash, we've been everywhere. John is after doing a ball of these gigs with us. Mm. But I just, any time I ever see John, I'm just kind of enthralled. He's very witty. Yeah. His songs are, are great. They're happy, they're sad, they're quirky, they're funny. They're like, he, he as a songwriter, John can uh, tick lots of boxes. I mean, it's just, again, man, I know I keep mentioning his melodies, but do you ever watch him the way he plays? You'll be going home humming the songs and it's in your head for ages. That's just John, you know? That is the secret. His songs just wrap you up in them. Mm -hmm. Because you have to listen to the story. Mm -hmm. and You have to listen to the lyric with John because if you don't, you don't get the package. Yeah, and his Christmas uh, specials that he does every year have become legendary. Gosh, they're sold out in February. Uh, yeah. <laughs> they're sold out in February, like, it's but, crazy. Oh, it's just, uh, a lot of people don't realise that John was a rocker back in his day as well. And he tells know. us all about that in, in a good chat we had with him in The Hit Factory. So here we go, John Cork's own bard, John Spillane. Was there a particular point when you decided, this is what I'm going to do for a living, this is, this is how I intend to make my... My bread. Well, I don't think there was one particular point. Like, but I, um, like, I finished school now when I was seventeen, and you had to get a job, and um, I uh, didn't want to go to college because I was fed up of uh, books. Like, and uh, I did a, an interview for the ESP, 
the Bank of Ireland, the AIB, and the civil service at that time in 1977, 1978. That was the thing, like, they were the four things you did. And uh, I got the Bank of Ireland. So uh, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't particularly interested in banking or anything like but as far as my mother was concerned, I was, I was one sorted during the one out of five. So I went to Limerick and I got a job in the bank. But then I was thinking, like, I'm going to be a banker. No, that's my life. Yeah. Till I'm 65, like, do you know what I mean? Um, I mean, which is good in one way because they were a nice crowd, like, and you know it was good, good wages, of course, and mm. it was sorted. But I, I said, like, what about all the other stuff? Like, you know what I mean? Yeah, things you're missing out on. Like, um, like going through the jungles of Africa, like, um, you know, catching malaria, <laughs> and going to the moon. I don't know. It just seemed like there, mu- there, there must have been more to life. Yeah. S- so you, um, you didn't want to close that door at eighteen, like. Well, it was closed at eighteen because you see, like, when you when you're in, you're in, like. And yeah. when you get to Carol, then when you're 19, you have you then. Yeah, because you're playing it back. Yeah, so, um, so I was playing in a band in Cork, and um, I was uh, we were playing in Sir Henry's every Wednesday night. Was I was it, hitching would up. Would this have been Sabre? Well, we were called Bootless first, and then we were called Sabre. Okay. But um, so we went full-time with the band, and uh, my buddy, Tony Buckley, was working in the Hibernian Insurance Company, 80 South Mal Cork, and he had a job for a lifetime as well. And um, so we made a pact that we got a manager actually and then when we got the man we were playing at Henry's like and we were we had a we had a PA and we had a van and we went full time so um, so it was very scary but we kind of jumped off the cliff mm. how did that go down at home? well um, <laughs> my mother said to me don't ever come back to this house again if you leave your good job in the bank nice. but then I rang her I said I'm after handing her my notice and she said I sure we'll see you Friday night <laughs> so how did you go from because um, Sabre was, was it was a rock band really wasn't it Sabre was a rock band yeah, I was playing bass right and because yeah. the journey from going from uh, a rock band to, to your folk songs no one brilliant and everyone sings them all over the world but that it's a total different genre so how did that transition happen well um, so I was playing the rock band but the band broke up after about a year and uh, I won't go into the details of the band broken Sorry. up, but I left my own band, and I walked off into the darkness, and um, as well as playing the rock, bass and singing, I um, I used to play acoustic guitar as well, and I had written a few songs on the acoustic, and that was a different thing, and that was from more like after the rock gig, you'd sit down and you'd have an acoustic session. Okay. Do you know what I mean? Like with, with like Christy Moore songs and planks, you know Irish ballady kind yeah. of songs. And um, at that time in Cork, um, Johnny Campbell used to organise these games of soccer between the punks, the rockers and the folkies. And we used to play down in St. Michael's in um, Black Rock. And I was with the rockers. Right. And uh, <laughs> the rockers and the folkies. So the rockers were Sir Henry's crowd. That's what I was... Like We used to go to Sir Henry's all the time and be in the Hall of Fame in Sir Henry's. Right. The cool dudes who were in the bands and play there on a Wednesday night. And uh, Jimmy McCarthy was God, Declan Sinnott was God, and um, Small Change and somebody, some of the rock, Cork rock bands that were brilliant. Some, some greats in there, isn't it? Were, were greats. So, um, so we were the rockers, but then the folkies were the Phoenix crowd, and that was like Jimmy Crowley, um, you're a, um, Jackie Daly and Seamus Cray, Mick, Mick Daly, Ona Reivig, all the Stokers Lodge, all the Stokers Lodge crowd, the yeah. Phoenix, they were the folkies. And then the punks, 
were actually in the Phoenix as well, but they were upstairs in the Phoenix. They were five went on to the sea, um, none attacks, um, Belson and those kind of punk bands that were there, Micro Disney. They were a disgrace. They never won a, a soccer match because they were always drinking cans <laughs> and uh, smoking joints and all that kind of stuff. I was going to say something about Micro Disney, they were one of my favourite bands. <laughs> yeah, I don't think they ever appeared, actually, now that I say it, even though they were one of the punk bands, I don't think they ever appeared on their soccer pitch. Oh, Chris, Chris McCarthy actually played yeah. soccer. He was in Micro Disney. Yeah, so mm. they were represented, all right. But anyway, um, that was the tr- there was three crowds in Cork and I... I, I changed from being a rocker to being a folky. And um about the transfer. After I left the band then I start I started stopped hanging around in um in Henry's. Sir Henry's and going over to the Phoenix more I was in the Phoenix a lot and um I kind of um I was a huge fan of Jimmy McCarthy. Jimmy McCarthy was on fire at that time. He was writing all the great songs. Ah, sure. Like I remember the day I walked into Henry's and he sang Right On for the first time, he just wrote it that week like mm-hmm. O'Flynn's The Donkey's Ears, he played up Upstairs there once a week he played um, in Sir Henry's once a week he played in Gary's Inn once a week with his band, you know. So Jimmy was always, was always doing gigs. You could see him like mm. nearly every week. But anyway, um, so then I started hanging around in the Phoenix crowd, and then Noel Shine, who was a musician from Clare, who was living in Cork, um, Jimmy McCarthy actually put us together because he said there's a gig happening in RTE. It's called Sounds Promising. It's a Shea Healy gig, and um, they're looking for new up-and-coming up talent. And for some reason, Jimmy said, Noel and John, you should do it together. So I don't know. I, I can't remember the ins and outs of it. Mm. But anyway, Noel and uh, Jimmy were sharing a house on Barrick Street at the time. And I used to be up there all the time. And um, me and Noel Shine came together and we, we we entered this thing called Sounds Promising and we sang a song by Noel and a song by mine of mine and um and two acoustic guitars and then we became a kind of a group called Noel Shine and John Spillane and um it was two just two acoustics and I was doing my acoustic set then and then there was a record brought out called um The Best of Sounds Promising and my song ended up on the record. It was the first song I had like um released uh, the best that sound promising Do you remember 1983 that? or 1984 1983 or 1984 and the LP is actually still inside in the Cork Music Library. Do you remember the name of that song? That song the... the song was um, My Love Will Not Sing For Me. Okay. I'll do, we'll do one short verse of it. My love will not sing for me She cannot find the time She sits among the tables Drinking blood red wine That's the first verse of it. So I, I revisited it then this year when I did the acoustic series volume one. Okay. Yeah, so that's that was my song My Love Will Not Sing For Me. Yeah, well I was um, around at home then being a musician like and um, my mother said to me, why, why don't you go to college in the daytime and do the music at night? And uh, anyway, if you're going to be living in this house and all that. Yeah, so yeah, um, yeah, yeah. so <laughs> we, we worked out a deal and uh, and I went to UCC and I did a degree in Irish English. And uh, I did it really to, to hone my skills for being a songwriter. 
you know what I mean? I thought yeah. the English would be handy for being a songwriter, and mm. the Irish would be handy for being a songwriter. Both of them stood to you. Both of them stood to me, but um, I got on great in the Irish in UCC because I learned a lot of Irish, and I had a whole thing going on Ballyvorney then and Cooley, and yeah. I so the Irish was good, and um, I learned Irish, which was very useful because I was learning it before it was profitable or popular. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we never taught in a, in a million. There wasn't even a. You just doing it for the love of it. Yeah, it was a thing like, but um. We never thought they'd be a TG Cahar, and it, well, people were laughing at the idea of a TG Cahar. And even when TG Cahar was founded, the people were still, were still yeah. attacking it from every side. And here we are years later. Yeah, it's been 25 years, isn't it? And, yeah. and you're now doing things in Africa for TG Cahar. Mm-hmm. Everything I saw a couple of series. So thank, thank God for TG Cahar. But um, <laughs> you, you remember all that thing about TG Cahar. I mean, it was attacked. <laughs> I mean, Irish gets attacked all the time, man. Mm-hmm. The Irish mm-hmm. language gets attacked hugely on every level, like. Mm-hmm. But um, anyway. Um, so I did the old degree, but I mean, I was gigging then at night and all that kind of crack, and I only scraped and all passed in the end. But um, I learned what I wanted to learn out of it. But I didn't like English in UCC at all, because I found I was in the camp of the enemy, Roy Buckley, in the camp of the enemy. And the enemy is that uh, is the critic. Like, I'm a creative writer, but like when you do a degree in English, there's no mention of creative writing. What you're, what you're learning, what you're doing in a degree is, is in criticism. Mm. Do you know what I'm saying? I do. As um, Brendan Behan called the critics, the eunuchs and the harem. <laughs> they don't do nothing, only make comments about what are people who do things. Yeah. So uh, the English, anyway, was criticism, and I, I didn't get on well there, really. But I mean, I, I scraped the pass, as they say, in the end. So then I was um, playing gigs, really. And then uh, during the time I was in college, then um, I... I played bass, you see, and I used to work as a bass player around Cork, like for you know wedding bands or whatever. Like, and and then I was lucky enough to get a gig with Jimmy Crowley, and Jimmy Crowley had Jimmy Crowley in Stoker's Lodge, and after Stoker's Lodge, then he had a thing called the Quartet, which was an acoustic quartet. Uh, Jimmy Crowley's first quartet was um, Jimmy Crowley, Mick Hanley, uh, Martin O'Connor, and Johnny Campbell, and uh, that was some band like, mm. and uh, then. His second quartet was Jimmy Crowley. I was playing acoustic bass with him. Johnny F- Murphy, Johnny Fang Murphy was playing guitar, and um, we were. Um, that was a, that was the first proper, uh, really paying gig that I got. Really was working for Jimmy Crowley, playing bass with him, and I spent two summers playing with him, and it was brilliant. Mm. And uh, he was in all the Cork songs, which was a fierce education. Mm-hmm. You couldn't pay for it. Mm. You know, and Christy Toomey used to be there with him, and he knew all the. I mean, I played in. Um, I played at the fair in Spencer Hill, with Jimmy Crowley, like when he was like doing the boys at Fair Hill and all that, like and the fly and the stole, um, within the north of Ireland. I went, you know, all kinds of places with, with Jimmy, and uh, so that was a fierce education that you could not pay for, mm. better than any u- university. Mm. And was that your first time meeting uh, Johnny Fang? Because the Stargazers happened then as well. Yeah, the Stargazers came out of that then because. Like, I was playing with John, Noel Shine and John Spillane, but I was also playing with Jimmy Crowley. And um, in Cork at that time, I suppose, like, no, like, everybody was playing with everybody, like, mm. you know what I mean? Mm. So, um, Johnny Fang, then, who was in Johnny Murphy, was a, a member of Stoker's Lodge, acoustic guitar player, and uh, a folk trad musician, like, and they were a great band. Mm. And um, Johnny was just investigating jazzy chords. He was getting fascinated with jazzy chords and he was learning songs with Leon Redbone. He was a guy doing retro um, 
kind of jazzy American old-fashioned music and Johnny was learning like diminished chords and you know ninths and he was fascinated by them but you see I knew all them because I was um I was mad for the Beatles when I was a young fellow like I knew all the Beatles songs and the Beatles like have the very classic jazz chord progressions yeah like and they have diminished and uh, augmented and six and you know all kinds of my, my, so I knew all that kind of those chords so I was able to you know, I'm not sure Johnny, but I was working with Johnny, and we worked out a few, um, a few uh, f- fancy um, jazz songs. Like I remember the first one we I think was, Why won't you kindly tell me why you always leave me high and dry? Give all the other boys attention, dear. You know these kind of jazzy songs, and. Uh, and uh, chords like that, and uh, so we—it was only just for fun. Mm-hmm. And then Johnny said, "Like, why, Johnny said, why don't we get another guitar player in?' Like, and uh, we had—we tried one guy, and then we tried Chris Ahern, and Chris Ahern um, and me and Johnny, we had a few get-togethers where we were working out. Like, I think that was the first song that why, but we did it in three-part harmony. Okay. And uh, then myself and Chris would go into ooh, oohs for the chorus, mm. and Johnny would do the main vocal, and we were laughing our heads off because it was just like yeah. very funny stuff. Like oh, that sounded great. The stargazers. Well, stuff comes yeah, from sense. that then, from messing around and playing around. Stuff actually comes from it. Oh yes, and we, we like between the three of us now, we had two acoustic guitars. I was playing the bass, yeah. so we had two guitars and a bass and three voices, and you could do an awful lot with that. It was great fun. We used to go to, um, we used to practice once or twice a week, and we had great fun. And we go for a few points after, and and it was more of a joke than a real thing. And then we got a gig, and we like we had ten songs, and we got a gig. There's a lot of work in that kind of music. Like we used to play in O'Flynn's on Union Key upstairs, and uh, then Johnny suggested that we put on the tuxedos for a laugh, and we put on the tuxedos for a laugh, and everybody, like the stargazers, the early stargazers gigs were a huge amount of fun. Cause we were playing all this stuff that no, you know, the kind of jazzy harmony stuff, and uh, then we were wearing the tuxedos, and it was great. It was like a party. Every gig was like a party, and uh, it was great fun. And we never meant—I never meant to play that kind of music, but we just—it was so enjoyable that I ended up playing with the Stargazers for seven years. Yeah. yeah, but I was on my way to do my own stuff. But we were just—we we were such good friends. We were having a good time, and we got gigs. We were on a talent show in RTE Television on 1985, I think. Called Sounds Promising, and we won all the heats, and we were beaten in the final by Fiona Kennedy, who was a neighbour of mine from Highfield, and uh, <clears throat> she won it when she batted her eyes at the camera, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and uh, so we say anyway. But uh, when she batted her eyes at the camera, so that's it. It's all over, lads. That's it. So um, <laughs> but we we got kind of well known out of that, and we got a lot of work. So. Mm. Um, and I, I, I played at the Stargazers um, until 1991. I left the band in 1991 to do my own stuff. Yeah. And I swore I was never going to join another band again or play bass and again. I was going to do just my own songs. Mm-hmm. And then I played for a while in the duo, John Spillane and, and Johnny McCarthy. We did the lobby bar once a month. And then um, I joined Nomos, even though I said I wouldn't mm-hmm. join the band. They were, a, they were a brilliant traditional band. Mm-hmm. And they were from um, Armagh, Donegal, Wexford and uh, County uh, County Clare 
and they were all in Cork because Michal O'Sullivan was in Cork. Michal was a big presence in Cork. He was head of music in uh, UCC and you could do a degree in traditional music as opposed to classical music and he attracted all kinds of um, brilliant musicians to Cork in the same way as he's been attracting every kind of musician and dancer to Limerick now since he left Cork mm-hmm. 20 years ago or 15 years ago. So we, we had a band called Nomos, a traditional band, and uh, I played fretless bass and I, I did my own songs then with, in the band as well, in between the tunes. And um, I played with Nomos from uh, 1992 until um, 1998, something like that. Mm. And then I finally went solo. Yeah. And I've been solo ever since. Yeah, 20 fly, years. Fly you mentioned the lobby there, John. Um, you have so many great songs, I probably won't get to ask you about uh, a whole lot of them, but Magic Lights in the Lobby, bow, a cracker of a song. Oh, thanks, Roy. I, you know that's a winner. Well, yeah, when, when, when Christy Moore records it, you yeah, know, it has to be good. <laughs> sure, Christy yeah, Moore yeah. is after doing what? Magic Lights in the Lobby, bar, Johnny Long got the band and calling, Gorta Toggart, I mean, he's after covering a good few of your songs. Love Christy, like, love Christy. Yeah. Mm. And when I was writing songs for years, nobody ever nobody would ever sing any one of my songs even though I, I was sending them to people mm. but no I, I couldn't catch any fish because it seemed like the songs were a bit queer right you know, they, they were, I always thought that they were, they were songs written about things that other people wouldn't write songs about like right. who else would write a song about a girl working in Dunn's stores yeah well there you are so you maybe know, that was why but that's the creative mind and, and the one the, 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 my favourite line of all your songs the jumped up little manager in a suit that doesn't rhyme yeah. I can see the little bollocks in Dunstall leave <laughs> <laughs> those managers alone no, in Dunstall so. <laughs> yeah. so, um, so nobody would cover the songs but then eventually you know Chrissy is doing them like, so, um, mm-hmm. so happy days I wanted to ask you just about Magic Nights because you mentioned Ricky Lynch and Brendan Ring and um uh, 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 Joe Wolf. Wolf. Yeah. Why? Because uh, the lobby was an institution. Yeah. Why did you pick those three guys out of? Yeah. Well, that's everybody? a good question. Well, I kind of do everything in trees. Okay. So like, uh, like I am inclined to do three verses to a song. Okay. Or I'm inclined to, you know, it's just an Irish thing, like you know. It's, it's your thing, yeah. It's like the shamrock. It's like the the jigs and the reels, and it's like everything happens in trees, and um, so with the lobby bar, I picked three moments that were brilliant there was a lot of brilliance That's what I, I mean, I mean there so was incredible much, yeah. gigs there that we didn't know how, how, how spot we were really and um, so I just picked three special moments and one was when I was sitting there and uh, Brendan Ring the piper was playing Madame Bonaparte this mm-hmm. this tune and I had this feeling like of being transported you know um, you know I remember the, I remember the moment having that feeling about it like there was something like he's a, he's a magical kind of a piper he's back in Cork now he's in Bantry now he was away for years but uh, Brendan Ring he was a fascinating character but he played the pipes but he Madame Bonaparte's um, he was a big fan of Finn Barfury's piping Finn Barfury had um, inspired him as a piper when he was a kid um, Brendan grew up in England but that's not, so that was one moment and then another moment was listening to Chris listening to Ricky Lynch singing Autumn and Mayfield yeah. great song and um, it's, beautiful it's not even on his record, I don't think. Oh, he does it sometimes. He does it sometimes, yeah. yeah. It's, um, He's an incredible it's artist. A, it's a song about the day of his father's death. There's a coffin lying in the front room. And it was Autumn and... I swear. Uh, the song is called Autumn and Mayfield. And, um, and the barley was ripe. Yeah, great verse. So I quoted Ricky's... Um, stanza. Kind of stanza in my song. 
And then the other third moment I picked was Ger Wolf when he was singing that song called The Lark of Mayfield, another Mayfield connection. Mm. And people are often ask me, I don't know if I'm from Mayfield, but no, I'm not, I'm from Wilton. But like we spent our, our whole childhood getting the number eight into town, which said Mayfield, yeah. Gert Dalling on it. So I think Mayfield to me was some faraway imaginary place, like, but it's ended up in the songs anyway. I left the um, I left Nomos and I went full time as doing all my own stuff, and uh, I used to be in the lobby. And then, when I turned, f- when I became forty years old, um, I got a phone call from um, this guy, Larkin Ennis. He said, "He I'm a manager." Another great guy. And uh, he, I had a very good feeling about that phone call. I kind of knew. This sounds funny, you know, but when Larkin, I knew I was, I, I knew I was, uh, I just kind of knew. It so wasn't like I was off. hoping. Mm. I kind of knew, which is strange to say, but anyway, he got me a deal with EMI. So when I, for my 40th birthday, I got a leather jacket and a five album contract with EMI Ireland. And um, it took him a long time to persuade EMI to come and see me. They had no interest in me actually, but eventually when one of, when they did come to see me, I got the deal. So then I made a record, um, Will We Be Brilliant or What, in 2002. And uh, there was four singles off it, like, you know, there was fierce. It was like a different level altogether with those people because they were EMI records, same label as the Beatles, like mm-hmm. um, EMI Ireland, but still a major. Yeah, huge. And the first single was The Dance of the Cherry Trees. Sorry, the first single was We're Going Sailing. No one will believe us. Um, Dance of the Cherry Trees, something else. I don't know, there yeah. was four singles and then the record. Yeah. And Ch- uh, Cherry Trees was such, that's an iconic song. Thank you so much. That is an iconic song. I had to ask, like, was that just simply a matter of walking through, say, Ballyfehan and seeing the the pink rain, as I call it? Did it come from that? Or well, I, I've always enjoyed uh, Pierce Road and Ballyfehan, and yeah. like, I, when I, I often would like drive down it, like, mm. at the end of April. Yeah. So I was very aware of that, like. Yeah. But um, what happened to me now was I was I was I wasn't feeling well. I had a collapsed lung. Right. Collapsed lung. I was a sore boy. And I was up in the COH and I came out of the COH and my side was really sore. I was feeling really rotten. And I ran into a cherry blossom tree. No, I think it was the Wilton Roundabout. It doesn't matter anyway, but um, but the cherry blossom tree seemed ridiculously illuminated. Yeah. Pink and shiny and like like a vision in somebody's front garden. And I was like, jeez, look at that. There was another one as well. Um, and again, you told me this actually, where you, there was a man. Do you remember that? There was a man who took a wife. Remember that one? Yeah, yeah. And I always had a strange, I took put a strange meaning into that song. Yeah, I thought yeah. he was a violent man. Do you remember that? Oh, you did. Do you remember you told me that years ago, PJ? Yeah. Yeah. Well, where did that come from? I don't know song. Well, with that particular song, no, I made up. Um, I made up a guitar part, and I was playing it, and I was addicted to playing it. I still can't play it right, you know, it's hard to play it. <laughs> so trying to play. Anyway, and it goes around. Now, um, I did get married in 2002, so that I had something to do with it. Mm. And um, But I had the, I had the tune, I'd say, for a long time, and I, would, I could play it all day and all night. And I had no words to go with it. And I was going to put it to um, the W.B. Yeats poem. I went into the Hazelwood because a fire was in my head. Because that fits it perfectly. I went into a Hazelwood because a fire was in my head. And cut and peeled. You know, that would have fitted it. So I was going to use it for that. And then I thought it wouldn't be better not to get one of your own um, 
you know, you're on your own lyrics, like, mm-hmm. push it on, like, rather than bowing down to WBH, like. So, um, actually, I went for a swim in the hellhole. You know the hellhole? Out in the English, right? Yeah, so um, I'd go in there now, and it's only in the summer, like, there's a short window, really. And uh, I dive into the hellhole anyway, and I just start, um, I was just a head above water, the rest of me was gone. I was a talking head. <laughs> I was like the fella in the old folktale, he got his head cut off and he kept talking. Yeah. Um, there was a man who took a wife to walk beside him through his life. I just made up the words. That's the mm, way. That's, that's, like the, that's a momentary inspiration. Now what do you do then? Do you jump out of the water, wrap something around yourself and write it down? or did it? Yeah, no, you, know, you remember it. Like, like, yeah. I, I don't write things down at all, really. You, no. know? you, you remember the gist of it. I think that's any good you remember, mm. but I think that that comes that kind of stuff that comes from training. I think if you're used to writing songs, you know what I mean. Like if you wrote a song every mo- one a month, mm. if you wrote a song one a month for ten months, even if they were cat, right? And I thought how good they are at all. When it comes to the eleventh month, you'll write another one. Mm. It's called training the horse. Mm. Do you get me, PJ? I do, yeah, yeah. Because I often, as I said to you, I mean, I often used to wonder, listening to your songs in the show, where did the idea come? Oh from, yeah, from that, that's for nice, that song. Yeah. And John, would you put? But I, I see, I was after getting married. I suppose yeah. a few months earlier, so that's probably where it came yeah. from. But I wasn't thinking at all. So, do you spend a lot of time? Would you put time aside weekly or daily or monthly to work on songs? No, you, I don't. I just, I, just I, I never do that. And I never do this thing that people do, like sitting down in the morning with a yeah. blank sheet of paper. Like I don't. I just be tipping away like when I'm driving around or in between things. Whenever you get inspired, kind of. Yeah, well, I, I well, you see what the thing is like. I usually have a project. You know what I mean? A song going. Down to your head, that makes you more focused if you're given a. Well, a I, 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 I'm good if I, if I, if I, if I get a start at all. I'm good at um, talking it up and doing the pep talk and finishing out like. Yeah. Like I'm writing a song at the moment now. Like I've nearly finished, but then when I'm finished then what happens is an empty space with no song. Then you're looking around, like, and if you're hungry, like, you you, you get some bit of a start. Mm. Mm. That kind of crack. Did you write an opera, or did you start to write an opera? Did you? <laughs> yeah, well, I've, I've, I wrote the opera, and um, I, I wrote the first... Well, the, it's a work in progress at the moment. I'm, I'm shelving it now for the moment, but um, the opera is um, called Fierishka, The Legend of the Lock, and uh, it's written on a plaque out at the lock, but which no one ever read. That I found, <laughs> I haven't found a single Cork person who read the who read this. Everyone goes, what, what, what? It's invisible. Yeah. It obviously has been surrounded in a fairy mist by the fairies, down from a fairy lawn, <laughs> and uh, the king of Crotamore. And um, the legend was published in eighteen twenty. Fairy legends of the south of Ireland by Thomas Crofton Croker, who was a fascinating Cork personality in eighteen twenty. He was a, it was a huge selling book. Fairy tales were big at the time, translated to German by the um, the Brothers Grimm, Hans Christian Andersen, and uh, here on Cork, Thomas Crofton Croker, and uh, like that was a huge huge book at the time, and the Legend of the Lock is one of the stories, and um, I was going to do something about it, and then I thought like it's actually an opera, so um, I began writing the opera, and I wrote, I wrote a lot of it, and then I did a week's development work with Kirk Adorica, site-specific theatre company, Pat Kiernan, mm. and with John O'Brien, who's a very talented Kirk musician who's staging his own opera now, The Nightingale and the Rose. 
um, next month in Cork, in the Everyman. And um, so um, we did a week's development work with two sopranos and a baritone in the Triscoll in 2016. And uh, then I did a load more working on it. And then this year in February, we did another week's development work in the Triscoll, again with two sopranos and a baritone. And uh, I finished the first draft of it, first finished draft of it at Christmas. But now after the last week, uh, we did, I'm kind of fed up with it now for the moment. I'm just giving it a break. Mm. So there's a, there's a final draft done, but it needs to be rewritten now. And uh, it's a colossal amount of work to rewrite something like that. For me it is, because I don't like have the skills to um, write the dots or anything. Right. So um, so anyway, it does exist. And there is, the, there is a draft of it there. It needs to be rewritten. Then it'll be ready for orchestration. Then it'll be ready for production. But the dream is to stage it. Um, it's set on um, St. John's Eve, Bonfire Night. Mm. The, the, the dream is to put it on, on the lock, on Bonfire Night. It won't be this year. It won't, it, won't be the, it won't be next year anyway. Like, yeah, it'll be, and it, it'll cost a fortune, but um, it would be very magical to put it on like in the twilight. Yeah. You see, it's about before there was any lock there. You'd be, it's set in ancient Ireland when there was no lock, but there was a castle there in a, in a green valley and about the well. And then the, at the end of the opera, the well overflows and the lock is formed. Right. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So they all drown. But, you know, that's it. Like, it's a it's period. something I always admired about you, John, because it, your research into your songs and, and the time you take to go, you don't just try and do it quickly. You know, ah, and, yeah. Because all people see usually is the performer on stage just doing the song. But that... In a way, that's kind of the, the easy part because you, it's the research of learning about it. Oh, actually, yeah, it out, yeah, right, yeah. Fitting the music to the words or, or the other way around and all that. There's enough that, like, you're, you're brilliant at that. Another thing I loved about you was how you did that documentary with uh, Irish TV, TG Carroll, where you went to the different towns around Ireland and you wrote a song for each town when you were in the town. Some people like but couldn't do that in a million years and you just churn out these great songs. I loved the one you did for uh, Feather Tongue. Oh, thank you. That was, that was great. Did you ever hear that one? I didn't hear that one. No, the one I was going to ask you about was the famous 19 second song. Oh, Will yeah. I do it? Do, yeah. yeah, yeah. We might as well. <laughs> well, um, here we are. Um, so, there's a trick in life called the power of positive thinking. Mm. It's a famous thing. Like It was a million selling book. But... Uh, so I got a gig off somebody to do um, the signature tune for um, Martin's Amatable Fish. So anyway, it's 19 seconds. So. Delicious, the wishes, the fishes and dishes jumps out of the ocean and into the pan for Martin the hookery cookery man. The salmon and knowledge below in the college, the cut on the rod, the jig on the dish. The fish is mad about Martin and Martin's mad about fish. 19 seconds, but that was probably about 15 there now because I rushed it. Like, yeah, but, uh, do, do you know what I loved about it? He had to finish that with the last line, had to be Martin's Madabout Fish. It's the line before that cracks me up. The fish is Madabout Martin. Yeah, it's just coming then. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's brilliant, John. And 19 seconds to do it for a TV intro for the for the programme. They love him so much that they could they commit kamikaze for him, like they dive out of the ocean. Cook me, Martin. There was been a lot of international stuff as well, though, John. I mean, you you travelled the world at this stage, and I I remember you telling a story. Did you do the national anthem in Australia, and did you stand back and go, Jesus, look at this? I did national anthem in in Australia. It was very upsetting because uh, my mother died in October 2008 and I was going to Australia for a tour. Now I didn't know if I'd be going or not, mm. 
But um, the week after she died, we, I went to Australia a few days after, and um, I was in. I flew to Perth, and I got the gig to sing the national anthem. Irish Oranavian at this game in the Sud. What's it called? Sudiaki, Supiaki. I can't remember now, but no um, stadium and uh, in uh, Perth, Ireland versus Australia, in the um, compromise rules. Mm. But like that's not my usual gig at all. Like I, I'm not like. Like I play, I I had to walk out into the middle of the pitch and sing it like with no guitar, like to a backing track. So um, I did it, and it went well for me. I sang it grand, but it was very scary. I was very terrified. How many people were at the game? I think it was thirty-two thousand at the game. Like, but there was nine million on the television or something. Like, <laughs> you know. But uh, but I don't know what the numbers are. But anyway. Um, Compromise rules, like it's a kind of a mocky game. Yeah, the, the, the Aussie rules. Thing. Aussie rules, yeah, thing, yeah. yeah. But um, but I was, I was, I was very nervous. I was in an awful state. And this would be a song like you'd know since you were that high. I don't. I see. Here's a funny thing about now. Here's a funny thing about this, right? I never learned Oranavian. They never taught me at school. Yeah. I never knew the words of it. I knew except for Sheena Vina Foy. Song he was. I didn't learn at school. <laughs> yeah. Three albums about him. <laughs> I actually never learned the words of Oranivian. I avoided it all my life. You know, and I made Gael Gord and all. I never learned the. It was Patrick Carney, wasn't it? Patrick Carney. Some things like that happened. Yeah. You know, you were missing that day, or they never done it. You know. Yeah, yeah. yeah I mean, yeah. the same happened with the, the, the Hail Mary. I never learned, learned the Hail Mary in Irish oh, as well. Shade of Ahav or something. Yeah. People yeah. asked me to say that one time. I said I had the clue. I never. I never. Learn, you know, that's the way yeah. it goes. The, 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 the actually, where I mentioned the albums of Irish songs, like they, they, they were an inspired idea. Where did that come from? Um, that came from um, EMI Records when I was signed to EMI with a five album deal, and um, it was Willie Kavanagh who was the managing director of um, EMI, came up with the idea. He said, You know what, you should do now, you should do an album with um, Body Nilemi, Oro Shedavahawalia, Trastan and Adonta on it, and I don't care what else you put on it. And I said, I'm open to the idea. You see, they saw the Gaelge, they were positive towards, which I was surprised. Mm-hmm. They said, like, this Irish thing is growing, my kid is going to a Gael school, his kid is going to a Gael school, the Gaels, you know, it was, you can't, they couldn't even get into a Gael school in Dublin. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so um, it was Willie's suggestion, and uh, he said it a few times, and it, the last time he said it, I said, give me a month, Willie. And um, I made up the list, and I bought the book. There's a couple of books like um, Casauran, Kyol to Gael. Hmm. Now, I didn't really learn all those songs at school at all. I mean, that wasn't the name. The original album was called um, Favourite Irish Songs, hmm. Favourite Irish Language Songs, Best Love. You know, there was a various yeah. titles, but yeah, in the end, they went for Irish songs we learned at school. Um, and um, I went out to um, the Balancholic, to the Gael School, to Catherine Frost. And... Um, She's a great woman, and she's very involved in music. She was one of the Janicek sisters long ago, mm. and um, a very positive person. And uh, I'd been out there for, for various reasons before, and I knew the crack like that it's mm. a great school, Goel College to Cullum. And uh, so I was out there, and she got her first year class, and we did uh, we recorded Body and Me, Trusting the Down to Begin and Kamarok and all them. 
Yeah. And uh, we did it like in about six days. Just because you didn't learn them at school doesn't mean that some other school didn't learn ah, yeah, those yeah. other ones. Yeah, know? no, that's I remember when I saw the yeah. album, I picked up the CD, it came into the radio station, I said, what a great name for an album, because you look down the way, somebody, we did, or, I had them bet into me, I know that. <laughs> yeah, I, I had learned some of them at school, and some yeah. of them I half knew. I think we sang some of them in the Corella when we were small. Yeah, right? yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, so um, they're great songs, like Neil and Law, I know, like, and yeah, some of them, like, are... Hey Machine and all that ones. Yeah. So, um, so that 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 was um, ten years ago in Christmas two thousand and eight. That was the year my mother died. The same year I was out in Australia, and on her way to heaven, she waved a magic wand and she got me a hit record. <laughs> Wow. Yeah, that was for leaving the bank like it was a compensation <laughs> actually yeah. you've come nicely around to it now because I know you've got a gig to go to in Dublin and all that and taking up a lot of time I, the way we finish these ones off is looking back at it all from that was you know the first interview in the bank and going into the rock band and, and where we are now sitting in your kitchen and the big career behind whoa, you whoa, and, whoa, whoa, whoa. sitting in the kitchen it's not a kitchen man John tell him what this place is Hit factory. <laughs> I thought that was the most in the house. So is there something, John, looking back over it all, is there one thing that makes the whole journey worthwhile or one specific moment that you... Like a person or a place or yeah. a song? Well, what was a very special moment for me was the time that um, Christy Moore came to Gertha Taggart. No, like... Um, like I spent a lot of my childhood in Bantry on my mother's home place with my uncle Tim, the farmer, and um, he died in two thousand and five or two thousand six, two thousand six. And I wrote that song about the farm with the names of the fields, mm -hmm. and I had often been down there as a kid. Like, and uh, then I brought out that I brought out that uh, song in two thousand and eight on the album My Dark Rosaline. The song is called Gorta Toggart. Mm -hmm. I know unpronounceable, like, but um, Gorta Toggart, the farm. Mm. and uh, then Christy got on to me Christy more raving about the song and uh, could he sing the song and then he was um, he was in West Cork at the time and he came up to visit the farm and um, when Christy came to Gertrude Toggart and he sang the Cliffs of Dunene inside in the kitchen my Auntie Mary and my Auntie Chrissy and all that for me that was a special moment because it seemed like I was on the right track all the time mm. yeah. do you know what I'm saying? yeah Yeah. what a guy to, to have to do that as well yeah, and then he sang the song, and he does a great job of the song, like. But um, there was something about that seemed a bit extraordinary. Yeah. Yeah. There you are, no? There's my moment. John, thanks very much for your thanks time. For your time John. Thanks a million, PJ. Thanks a million, Roy. Rock on, lads. You're listening to the Song Collector podcast, brought to you from Cork, Ireland, by Roy Buckley Music. You know, if we didn't run out of time. We'd still be there. Still he was running off to do a show. In Dublin, yeah, he was yes. off to Dublin. <laughs> John Spland, the great one. Now, Big time, yeah. I'm an absolute legend. I hope that he keeps writing songs forever. New music again. New music from an old friend, uh, the great Francie Conway. Tell me about this one. Uh, again, Francie Conway, a great friend to us here on the... Um at, the at the Song Collector Sessions. We must get him in for a chat when, he when he's down our way. I mean... A wealth of stories. The guy has worked with... with Everybody. Everyone, yeah, yeah. Oh, he has. I mean, I rang Francie one time. Where I, he was in Montreux recording, and he was just after using uh, Freddie Mercury's microphone and David Bowie's guitar and Dave Richards, who was uh, producing Queen and everyone else, 
was producing Francie's track and I, mm. I, I, or a couple of his tracks yeah. and he, I was I was going He uh, regularly works in the studio where Freddie recorded and where David Bowie recorded Yeah, and, and, and others too yeah. 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 But um, in Ireland Francie has worked with his great pals with, uh, with Finbar Fury they, they worked together over the years he was in the Furies for a while mm. as well back in his day Um He's involved in the the rock school, and that's that's another thing about Francie. His uh, his his songs and his accolades, his accomplishments, his achievements, and the people he's worked with, mm. from famous guitarists like Jan Ackerman to our own back here in Ireland, from Rafiori and Christy Dignam and everyone, mm. he's worked with everyone. Stands on his own two feet, still writing songs for ages, and uh, he just sent me this new track, one for Europe. I was going, Jesus Christ, Francie, I think this is my favourite Francie Conway song <laughs> and all, ever. Great, great production on it. and um, His production values are so high. Big time, yeah. Really, really. I've, look, you don't go to Montreux with cheap production values. His, his production values are top end. Well, I, I, I Always think, have been. I think to Francie's credit, uh, he pr- probably cost him nothing because I think he was invited over. That yeah. That's even better, you know. Yeah, um, brilliant. But Francie is known everywhere and the stories about Francie are uh, not fit for telling. <laughs> Let's just hear the song. Let's hear the song. When he's down here in Cork or if we catch him along the road somewhere, we'll definitely sit down and have a chat with him. I'd love to. Just a crack in the ice This age 
exit will not divide Absolutely nothing is served by taking sides We've killed enough, we've built enough Ancient voices, tribal lands New days dawning, moving sands Cracker. That's typical Francie. Top great. quality in every department. Oh yeah, All big right. time, great production. During the week, Roy, you were telling me you were also with an absolute legend, um, and and someone who's become like a father figure to you, and someone I I know we hope to talk to for this show at some point. Pete, Pete Saint John. Yeah. Oh yeah. I mean. Uh, Jeez, the last few weeks I'm having a great time. I've been with Phil Coulter. I was actually with Declan Sinnott recently down yeah. in Ballycotton. But just the other night I was with um, Pete St. John. I mean, the man wrote so many folk classics. He's around uh, 86, 87 years old now and he's still penning stuff. He He's written The Fields of Athen Rye. He's written Dublin, The Rare Old Times. He's written Hey Johnny McGorry. He's written The Ferryman. He's written Danny Farrell. He's written When Margaret Was Eleven. He's written uh, Rings End Rose and loads more. So you're talking Luke Kelly, Finbar Fury, Jim McCann, Paddy Riley, all the Irish greats in the folk world, which is right up my street, as you know. So, I mean, it's a hero of mine. And to be invited along and asked to you know, uh, represent him with songs or, or to uh, showcase his songs and be there with him. Always, always a massive thrill for me. I mean, he, he, the guy is a, an absolute hero of mine, yeah. Mm, and he's become a dear friend of yours. Big ho- time, yeah. Ho- hopefully we'll get a man, chance to talk to him. he has some stories for you. I, oh, God. That man, he's um, he's very witty. Very witty. Well, we look um, forward to getting a chat with him in. in I'd in love to, yeah. yeah. So yeah. it was nice to see him just before Christmas as well. I hadn't seen him for uh, nearly a year. We've been on the phone and chatting and email and stuff, but um, I hadn't seen him for about a year. Before we go, I know you wanted to ask me something. Oh yeah, <laughs> you you're a journalist at heart, and you're always asking me the question. So I thought I might spin it back go on, on you. Um, baby, it's cold outside. And the Fairytale in New York and all that. What are you making of all this PC stuff? Because I see you're very active on your social media. Let's about this deal whole with the baby it's PC cold outside. Bullshit, as you're calling it. Let's deal with the baby it's cold outside. That is a parlour song. 
written 60 years ago by a guy for himself and his wife to sing at parties. So that's what that song's about. And looking back on it with sort of these woke eyes of the enlightened noughties, Mm -hmm. you're going to see things that were never there at all in the mind of the writer. That's what's been happening. And I think for radio stations to be killing it off just because someone is looking back on the 40s with the eyes of the noughties, it's just stupid. Mm. It's stupid. It's virtue signalling of the worst order. That's and, that one. And do you do you think that this PC brigade is really getting out of hand? I, I have no problem with people being PC. I have no problem with using careful language so you don't deliberately hurt anybody. Okay. But there's a difference between doing that and looking back at a song written 60 years ago. Like, let's, let's start on the works of William Shakespeare and put them through the shredder. Yeah. You know, because if you look at that, art is art and it's of its time. Mm-hmm. I just said this myself on and my, on my yeah. own social media. And it's written with the intentions of the time. Fairy Tale of New York's another one. Yeah. Shane McGowan issued a statement on that and basically said if you are, first of all, characters and songs aren't always likable. She wasn't likable. She's not meant to be likable. They're not likable people, but they're helplessly in love with both themselves and the drink. It was of its time. And basically, if you are upset by the use of that word, faggot, then you don't understand the song. Mm -hmm. That's pretty much what he said. I just said it myself the other night on my own social media about the characters thing. Like, I love... um I love characters in songs and a lot of writers use characters in songs to get a, a point across. And I brought it up about, does that mean so that if we're going to be ripping songs apart lyric by lyric, no, no, if this, if this is the world mm. we're looking at, does that mean that books, plays, sculptures, paintings, yeah. anything else in the world of art, is, is all this going to be censored mm. so by the PC monster as well? Let's... Do today's stuff for today with today's values. But let, let us not go back to art of a previous time. But all characters can't be uh, all, all nicey-nice, you know? Moral, yeah. you, what, what good is a hero if you haven't got a villain? This is true. This is true. But also stuff like Baby It's Cold Outside that was written as a harmless, as I say, parlour song. Bit of fun. You cannot impose the values of today on something written 60 years ago mm-hmm. when people didn't even think about these things. We better let it there because we're running out of time, lad. Okay. Let's plug the email address again. Your new music, uh, your your new songs, get them in in good quality. Songcollectorpodcast at gmail.com. We will have a show in the new year featuring a lot of new music. Yeah. So we're choosing that at the moment. So get it into us over the holidays and we listen to it. I think we'll hit off with... Um but a big, big one. Oh, we have. We've got one. Finbar Fury coming up. Yeah. The first show of 2019. An interview we did with him in The Everyman. Um, and again, one that the only reason we stopped talking was that he had to go on stage. <laughs> yeah. So it was one of those. So listen, to our, to all our listeners, have a great Christmas. We don't use happy holidays on this show. It's happy Christmas and happy 2019. And we'll see you early in the new year. Songcollectorpodcast at gmail.com. Spread the word and keep sharing. Cheers, Roy. Happy Christmas, mate. You too, buddy. Happy Christmas. Thank you for listening to the Song Collector Podcast, brought to you by Roy Buckley Music. Now, please, share the link with your friends.